know, we have been for the really since the beginning of the year talking about this larger theme of, of trust, transition, and adaptability, change. We've talked about change that is welcomed. We've talked about the change that uh, we want and desire to see happen in our lives. And we've also talked about how we are to negotiate the changes that are thrust upon us, the unwelcome change, changes that we didn't want, weren't asking for, and weren't really interested in, but we have to deal with it. So uh, change has been a big part of what we've been talking about. And the, the message itself has focused on the life of Moses, yes, but also it's been emerging to focus on the, the journey of the nation of Israel as they've been leaving Egypt after generations of enslavement. We've been following in the past few weeks the account in Exodus, how they begin to move forward into, into a new beginning. And so uh, this particular message is going to move and build upon where we've been, and we're going to pick back up with the narrative in the book of Exodus. But the title of the message has to do with something that is, is the focus, and that has to do with this idea of times of testing and how to prevail. Because inevitably in life, we will find ourselves in, in seasons where we are being tested and we are going to have to, to know how to endure and how to get through things and how to prevail and overcome. And so this is a part of the theme. It's part of what we're going to sit with. Now, to connect us back to where we were, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, but I'm going to put back up the map that we looked at last week and just kind of get everybody a little bit refreshed around what we were talking about. Remember when Israel was finally released from Egypt. They were on their way to the promised land. And the promised land, and this, is, these, this geography is still, you know, <laughs> where so much attention is today. But along the, the crest of the Mediterranean Sea, you can see that, there was the Canaan, there was the promised land. That's where they were heading. And remember we talked about how the shortest route out of Egypt would have been to go from Egypt, cut briefly to the east, and then up the coastline, up north, into the land of Canaan. Uh, the, that would have been a shorter journey but the Lord, if you recall, said that if, if Moses led the people that way, that they were going to run into this very violent uh, and uh, warlike people called the Philistines, who were coast dwellers. And the Lord said to Moses that they will be so fierce that Israel, who had no training, no weapons, nothing, would be overwhelmed in fear and want to quit and give up and go back. So God said, I don't want you to take them away the coast. I want you to take them another way. I want you to take them through a longer route through the wilderness. Now, if you can see the map... The wilderness could have easily been um, negotiated in a way that he avoided what's the tip of the Red Sea that connects to the larger Red Sea that's still a day. Sometimes it's called the Reed Sea. They could have very easily just been led across the top and, and, and down through the wilderness that way. But instead, God, if you notice that red line, and this is a, these are approximations just to give us an idea, God had Moses lead the people into an, an unusual place, a precarious place, a place where they were actually... Um, somewhat enclosed, that there was only really one access point out of it. Um, they were brought to the shore of the sea, and then to their, and we know that to their south and to the west were unfavorable terrain that would not have allowed them to actually get past it. There was really only one way out, and it was through the north that they had come down, down from. And so uh, it, it, the, it's been noted that God essentially led them into a dead end. And so with keeping that in mind, keeping the geography of what we're talking about here, let's pick this up in Exodus 14. And we'll look at verse number one and two. It says, Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses, order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Pi Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. 
Again, that's what we were just referring to where they camped. Camped there along the shore, the shore of the Red Sea, across from Belzephon. Now, these locations are no longer identifiable today, but uh, theologians, biblical archaeologists generally agree that they were south of where they were heading. And as evidenced by the, the phrase that is connected there in verse 2, order them to turn back and camp. So in other words, they were on their way, and God says, I want you, actually, don't go that direction. Go back down and encamp by the shore of the Red Sea. Now, that was an interesting, again, place for them to camp, because if you were an alarmist, if you were just a person, I'm sure there were some who said, well, boy, I sure hope Moses knows what he's doing, because, I mean, this is, this is not, a strategically speaking, a good place for us to be. I mean, what happens if Pharaoh changes his mind? Or what happens if, I mean, how are we supposed to get out of here? Because there was really only one way out. It was, it was through that entrance point. And again, they weren't being told. No one had any idea of what God was about to do. And it just seemed like it was a curious position to be placed in. And it didn't actually seem too smart. But again, I'm assuming that some of the people would have said, but I guess, you know, Moses must know what he's, do know what he's doing. I mean, he seems to hear from God. God's got us out of Egypt. I mean, that's a big deal in and of itself. And so they camped there. Look what we read in verse 3 and 4, though. It says, Then Pharaoh, the Lord said to Moses, Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused and they are trapped in the wilderness. Now, one of the things we're about to see here is that God essentially is about to have two tests. One test is for Pharaoh. And the other test is for his new nation, his new people, his, his freed people, Israel. It'll be their first test as a people. So simultaneously, God is going to test two different parties. He's going to give a final test to Pharaoh, and he's going to give a first test to his newly liberated people. We see what happens. God says that Pharaoh's going to hear about where you are, and his mind is going to turn one more time to thinking that this is the opportunity. I can't believe that I let it, let it happen. His heart is going to harden, much like cement hardens. And look what, look what God says. And Pharaoh's going to think the Israelites are confused. They're fools. They've trapped themselves in the wilderness. These people don't even know what they're doing. They're stuck. Do they realize what they've done? They've allowed themselves to be entrapped in the wilderness. It says, and once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and, I will chase, and he will chase after you. And, but I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. And after this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites camped there as they were told. Now, again, Pharaoh had this interesting pattern. I mean, we didn't cover this directly, but... You know, the way that God ultimately got Pharaoh to, to let the people of Israel go was through a series of incidents, plagues, judgments. Well, what happened is that God would, would say, you know, this plague is going to befall you and this, this judgment would occur. Pharaoh would say, okay, 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 stop, stop, stop. I, I'll let the people go. But then and just call off, call off this thing. And, and Moses would, would ask the Lord to stop it. And, and then Pharaoh, as soon as it stopped, and this is a very human tendency, as soon as it was no longer... Um, uh, he was no longer vulnerable to the judgment. His heart turned hard again. And he says, you know what? I've changed my mind. I'm not letting the people go. And Moses said, are you a fool? <laughs> You're fighting against God. And another judgment would come. Pharaoh would say, stop, stop, stop. I'll give up, I'll give up. I'll let you go. Just call this off. He, Moses would. And again, Pharaoh's heart would get hard. It, would, it was a continual occurrence, 10 times to the last one, when it says that God finally said, you know what? Death is coming. And every firstborn son from Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's son to the, the son of the lowest servant girl to the livestock, and the Lord said, and even to you, Israel, unless you do one thing, unless you slay, have a, a, a lamb slain and put the blood of that lamb on the posts of the door and on the lintel, and if you do this, the angel of death will come and will pass over you, hence pass over. 
death passes over. And of course, that anticipates the ultimate coming of one who would also bleed on a, on a piece of wood and whom death would ultimately be eradicated through his very gift of his life. Jesus, who John said would be, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in so many ways, so many things in the Old Testament, which in and of themselves sometimes are hard to understand, they actually anticipate something of what is yet to come. Many of them point to Christ. Passover, clearly, the idea of deliverance, the idea of death passing over through the blood of the Lamb on the door speaks so much of the coming of God's own Son. But that is another story, a far better one at that. But nonetheless, this finally breaks Pharaoh. And he finally says, fine, just go, get out of here. Take your whole people and leave this place, lest we all perish. And so we know that Israel was delivered. But, but this pattern was something that when Pharaoh hears about you know, what has transpired, when he sees the situation, one more time his heart is stirred, um, his arrogance returns, he begins to feel more and more angry about how he's been uh, taken advantage of. He decides, and I'm, I'm assuming that, that this opportunity was too good, that it, this was the time to, um, to finally finish what he should have done. He regrets his decision to let Israel go, and he determines to take advantage of their confusion and massacre and re-enslave the children of Israel. And so with that, and it's worth noting that up to this point, by the way, the one area of Egypt that had not been touched in judgment was their military. And they were one of the great military powers of their day. Um, Pharaoh's vaunted chariots were well known and feared. Uh, the chariots, we may look back and kind of see them as something of antiquity that, you know, it's just, you know, something that's worth noting. But in their day, they were almost like an armored tank, mobile, fast, powerful, overwhelmingly impressive, terrorizing, and to have them in num large numbers for people who had absolutely no weapons, no system of defense, made them absolutely completely vulnerable. It was going to be a literal bloodbath. And that's how it looked. And again, Israel is trapped along the coast with nowhere to go, really, but the way they came in. And notice what happens. Look at this. It says, and when word reached the king of Egypt, look at verse 5. It says, when word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. They changed their minds and they said, what have we done? What have we done letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. And so Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and, and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. Look at verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel. Interestingly enough, the Bible tells us who had left. It tells us how they left, who had left with fists raised in defiance. And you can imagine that. The Pharaoh is still stinging with rage because evidently, and this was not told in the first part, when Israel leaves, many of them are leaving, we are free. There is this sense of, we, you know, defiance, fist raised in defiance. That's the picture we're given. And you can just, you know, Pharaoh is angry. The, the generals are angry. However this happens, perhaps it was his generals who compelled him. Perhaps his priests assured him, or perhaps as in, you know, the Ten Commandment movie. His wife shamed him. You know, how could you let Moses go, right? <laughs> what do you mean? You know, we, we, will, we will get him. You know, bring back Moses to me. And this, this whole idea of, of how whatever compels Pharaoh to go after the people, I think it had to do with, it was, a, it was something that after his, his shock, and after the shock of the people, sort of withdrew, 
the anger begin to come back to him. And the Bible says that God allowed his heart to harden again. I think of like cement just hardening up. And pride blinds people. You think, how could you do this? You're foolish yourself. Look what's happened, but it didn't matter. They're there for us. They're there for the taking. And, and th that idea of in your face, we're out of here. That. Think about it. It's like, come on. Well, this will be it. And so they're on their way. They are pursuing. And you know what we're told? We're told that the people of Israel who, again, are encamped in this vulnerable position. And guess what? Well, how did they get in that position? They didn't have to be there. Moses led them there because that's what God told Moses to do. And here they are, and they're looking back at the only real way out because the sea's in front of them, is, and they can see, and let's just imagine that it's the end of the day, and we, and we have reasons to believe it was, that the day is closing, and you can see the armies of Pharaoh in the chariots and the dust just beginning to glimmer in the setting sun. And it's a fearsome, terrifying sight, and the people are absolutely in a panic. And look what happens here. It says that as Pharaoh approached the people, verse 10, it says the people of Israel looked up. They saw what was coming in the distance. And it says they panicked. And, and, and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them and they cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't, weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? They turn on him. What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, look, we said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. Listen, it's better to be a slave in Egypt than to be a corpse in the wilderness. You've done this, Moses. You, as they're looking at what's about to happen, I mean, they're just, fear is coming, and they start to, to just panic and they begin to blame, and they accuse Moses, and they say, you're going to get us all killed. This is your fault. So that's the picture we're given. Now, again, we said there were two tests. One test is for Pharaoh. He fails. His pride blinds him. He's, he thinks he's going to entrap Israel. In reality, he is being trapped. And the other test, though, was for God's people, who newly liberated people. And you know what? They didn't do too well either. They, the first thing they did when things looked bad, instead of sensing, because the Bible says there was a cloud, there was a presence of a pillar of a cloud that represented the glory of God. And it would, be a, it would be like a pillar of fire by night. There was something that spoke of the presence of God with them. But that, that didn't matter. All that they saw was the pursuing armies of Pharaoh. And they turned so quickly and so fast and they did what a lot of us do. They started, when they when were afraid, they, they blamed. And so I want to I apply this to, that, that's the account. I want to apply this. I want to work into this a little bit. Well, again, a big part of what we've been doing is challenging our own lives with God. So one of the things I want to put on the board is this, that, that oftentimes there are times when God is going to lead us into places where our faith is going to be tested. And we're going to call those places dead-end places. Because... <laughs> It, or so it seems, that's dead end. Because that's what it looked like. I mean, these, these dead ends in life often appear hopeless to us, desperate at the very least. I mean, it's bad. It's very bad. Uh, let's just say we learn a lot about ourselves in the dead end places in life. I mean, think about it. You know, I've, I've grown up, if you're like me, you probably have too. I've used the phrase, oh, that's a dead end. You know, I, countless times. You know, that street's, it's a dead end if you go that way. 
But you know, we don't say end, do we? We say dead end. I've, all this time, I've never actually thought about why is it called dead end? Uh, I, I suspect that the origination of the meaning of that phrase is connected to the idea of someone being pursued and having no, no place to go. They're, they're finally caught and they're killed. It's a place of death. It's an end that results in death, a dead end. And this idea that we get to places in life where things look like they're going to die. We're going to die here. There's no hope here. This is, we're done. It's a dead end. It's interesting because that's where it appeared that Israel was led to. And I think one of the things that happens to us when we find ourselves led into these places where it's a dead end. I can't go forward anymore. I'm being pursued. This is bad. This is very bad. That we learn a lot about ourselves, as I mentioned. What comes out of our mouth? Remember we said that Israel's first reaction was to do what? They started blaming. They turned on each other. A lot of times when we're afraid, when we're panicked, when we're angry, when we're feeling like things are, are falling apart on us, you know, it's, it's, it's a tendency to, to turn on people we love. And it's just in our anger and our fear uh, to speak things that we oughtn't to speak, to say things. To, you know, it's fascinating. In their panic, the first, all that they want to do is assess blame. It's your fault. You did this. You put us in this place. What an easy, natural tendency. I mean, they, they were a people who had, had such a fickle tendency. If God provided, it was like, God's great. But as soon as the thing turned in any direction against them, they were already, you know, mute, it was mutiny. And Moses will become the unfortunate <laughs> recipient of, of their uh, tendency to to sort of operate out of, a, of an entitlement mentality that has no sense of real trust in it. And so they, they like many times like we do, will find, you know, because sometimes when we're, when we're angry or we're, we're you know, in fact, when we're afraid, we, some of us let that fear come out in anger. We say things. We say mean things, vicious things, ugly things. We flail away recklessly in our, in our, in our sense that we're, we're in trouble. And it's your fault, or you did this, and it solves nothing. There's no wisdom in it. We say things oftentimes, and sometimes I've noticed that on the backside of something, we regret what we said. We cannot take words back. And some actions um, have deep implications. God wants to teach us how to live as a spirit-directed person, and one of the evidences of his presence in our lives will be an, an increased presence of self-control in our lives so that when we are in a panicked place, we do not start lashing out recklessly and undermining relational um, scenarios that we've had in our lives that have taken, you know, a lot of time to build something out and then we just strip out the bottom of the account real fast and the entire emotional bank account is just drained. Because in our panic, in our fear, in our anger, in our frustration, in, our, in, our, in that moment, we decided that it, this is so bad and it's your fault. We become reckless. Some of us don't become reckless with our words or actions. We just, we just walk around totally defeated. And we're mad at God. We're mad at people. We're mad at situations. We're frustrated. We're beaten down. We look at our demeanor reflects it. Uh, and so I think one of the questions is this. Where do we fix our eyes in the dead, when we come to a dead-end place? Where do we focus our, our attention? What do we turn to? What do we do? Um, I, I look at this, and I, again, I, I think it's easy to criticize Israel because... I mean, you know, did God miraculously deliver them out of Egypt? Wasn't he, his miracle presence with them now? But, but I think 
we would, we, I think it's better for us to say, actually, they're a lot more like us, and we're a lot more like them, because we also have short-term memory of God's faithfulness. Uh, I think it's one thing to, you know, to, to say, I believe in God, but to actually draw off of memories of God's faithfulness when things are not going well for us, or when things look bleak and intimidating, and then to reconnect that back is a hard, it's actually, listen, it's actually a harder thing to do than it seems to be able to say, Lord, you know, um, in the past you've delivered me, so I'm gonna trust you right now. It sounds easy, but when we're in the heat of something, when we're in the middle of something, when something is really bearing down on us, it's, it's so easy to start getting in a bad place and we start, again, flailing away and we forget what we've learned and we start questioning God's goodness and we wonder if he's even real and, we, and it's just, again, this whole idea of what happens when the heat is really on us and sometimes our faith in God wavers and, and it's in that presence of a, of a situation that seems overwhelming. And listen, not only were they being sort of tested in terms of are they gonna trust God, but think about this for a moment. What does Pharaoh represent for them? Pharaoh represents their past bondage. So here's the second piece. Some of us will find that we, we will be pursued by our past. And I look at this and I go, all of us to differing degrees and at certain times in our lives are pursued by it, but for some of us, we're in a particularly um, you know, pronounced season. Uh, um, there are some seasons that are far more challenging in terms of things of our past that are trying to, to reassert themselves in our lives. And we think we've left them behind, but they're coming back with a, listen, with a vengeance. And it's like we're being pursued. And what does Pharaoh represent? He represents, in some ways, that pursuing, what was his goal? To take them back and enslave them. They have been freed. He wants to bring them back, kill them, or bring them back and re-enslave them. And spiritually speaking, some of us right now are being pursued, and there's that real understanding. And it's true that God has delivered us with a mighty hand, but the enemy is on our trail, and we feel the, the breath of hell on our back. And we know it. And we wonder if we can make it. Like the songwriter says, you know, what if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I make fools of us all? There's something about this idea of being tested and being pursued by things, past ways of being, past things that we've experienced, past things we've thought we've gotten past, um, areas of bondage or our own form of, of being captured or trapped. God, listen, God calls us to dimensions of freedom. And to live in Christ is to live increasingly free. But we can find ourselves re-entangled with things. Can I, you know, I was sharing this with my, my uh, wife last night. Just, I was saying, you know, I, there's something here. And I, I'm trying to get this word, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. And she goes, you know when you were talking? She goes, it reminded me of a verse. She remember that verse, and she talked about, you know, this verse. And I went back and looked it up, and it was, it's in 1 Corinthians 10 which interestingly enough talks a lot about Israel. But let me put this verse up there and I'll show you something. Look what this verse says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says this, no temptation has overtaken us except that it is common to man. In other words, we all experience things in life. There is adversity that is common. All of us walk through stuff. Um, in some ways, our trouble is unique and in some ways, it's the same. And th there, there is a part of living on this side, in this world, uh, that is, Jesus said, look, in this world, you will have tribulation. Now, I'm not telling you a fake, there will be tough times. There will be difficult times. There will be dead end times. But the Lord says, that, but look at this verse. This is great. I mean, it's true. It's so true. Something that some of us may really want to ponder and consider. He says, listen to this, but God is what? God is faithful. 
And one of the things that God does is he will not allow you to be tempted, look at this, beyond what you are able. I mean, my grandfather, who was my spiritual mentor, he would, he would quote, I remember him talking about this verse, and he says, God will not tempt you, Terry, beyond what you are able. He says, listen, he always keeps the fight fair. And I've never forgotten that, spiritually speaking. Look at this. But with that temptation, God will do this. He will always make a way of escape. He will always make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it, get through it, move past it. Again, Israel looked trapped. It looked like they were stuck in a dead end. It looked like they were dead, finished. They were in peril. Pharaoh is breathing down, slaughterings out of his mouth. I mean, they are on their way. It looked bad. And yet God says he will make a way. And the key then in that place, and again, let's remember that in his grace is where we, our strength is. That in a, for our past to get to us, it has, for our past to, past to get to us, it has to get past him. And he will steady us in times of trouble. Third piece, remember to secure ourselves in the grace of God and to fix our eyes upon him. Look at verse 10. Where was Israel looking? What does it say? It says this, that it went, when, and they panicked when they what? When they what? When they saw the Egyptians. Their eyes were fixed on their enemy who was coming at them. And as long as they magnified that, that's when panic set in. Frequently, we begin to enlarge what is against us, our circumstance, our adversity, the situation that is coming against us. And instead of fixing our eyes on God, we fix our eyes on what, we are, what, is, what is causing fear to grow in us. We enlarge it. We, we, that's when we panic. And when we panic, we're not thinking well. And we're not creative. It's like our creative capacities shrink. And in that place of openness to God, when we can listen for his wisdom, in our panicked place, we close down. And what do we normally do? We drop back into old patterns that are usually destructive, unhelpful, and not really able to see past where we are. So our world shrinks up as we panic because our eyes are fixed on the wrong thing. Instead, the word there, of secu- this idea of securing, think about it as latching something in. We, we buckle it in and we snap it in. We secure ourselves in the grace of God. We, we position our life in such a way that I'm, I'm, by your grace, Lord, I will not focus on the thing that I cannot control. I will focus myself on you. Look at the, look at the, uh, the passage there, Philippians 4. Look what it says. And this is the a version that I just love. I know we looked at this passage a few weeks ago. I love this, this version where the NLT c- conveys this principle of truth. Look at this. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. And then you know what will happen? The pe- you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. And his peace will guard your heart and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, to brothers and sisters, one final thing. Listen to me. Fix your th- Fix, fix, steady Focus your thoughts on what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And then keep putting into practice all you've learned and received from me, Paul says. And listen, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, and then the God of peace, he will be with you. So this idea, I summarize, this passage for, for me is kind of summarized in three words. I just kind of tried to look at it in a different way. As I look at it, I go, wow, God, this is great. Because one of the things what is he's telling us, one, communicate, talk to God, bring your heart to him, 
Share your heart with him in that place of panic, in the dead end place. Let God hear you. Listen for him. Talk to him. Focus on him. That's the second piece. Communicate. Fixate. Focus. Focus on the things that are good. Enlarge God. And then what? After we do that, we begin to think through a third thing. We activate. We implement. We put into practice the principles we've learned. So it has to do with with talking to the Lord, pray to God, bring him into the equation, focus on his promises, fill our hearts with his words, his life, his promise, fixate on it, steady ourselves on, ourselves on it, latch ourselves into it, and then what? And then activate, implement into our life the things that we know to be true, even when everything seems to be going against us. And you know what we will find? That God will deliver in amazing ways. You know what Israel was about to find? that God actually was going to deliver them in such a remarkable way. It was so different than what they expected. But God was about to deliver them. And he had an entirely new way to go. And one of the things, again, that we remember here is that God is the one, listen, loved ones, God is the one who can make dead ends thoroughfares. He could take a dead end and make it a place of life. What Israel was about to find out was that the place that looked like they were where they were going to die was actually the place where their enemy was finally going to be finished, and they were on their way to a new thing. They were about to see an amazing point in their, in their life as a people that was going to usher them in truly to a new beginning as the, the armies of Pharaoh, their past is left behind once and for all as a threat to their life. And that God was about to do this thing. And again, that God, we, may faith rise within some of us that God can take the dead-end places and he can bring, the, bring us into a new place through them. That he is the God who sees. He is the God who does amazing things. The deliverance may not always be what we thought it was going to be, but listen, that's what God's business is. He's the God of new beginning. He's the God of life, not of death of new beginning, not of a, just an ending. And that's his way. And if we will welcome him into our lives, he will fill us with wisdom to negotiate anything. We don't have to be afraid. I was talking to, I was talking to someone. I'll just end with this. I was, we were, I was communicating. Was, I was listening to the situation, and it looked bleak, and it still does. And we were, I was, it was encouraging. I said, you know what? God can take this dead end, and, and he's got a, he's got a, he can make this dead end a thoroughfare in your life. He's got a new way. And it doesn't mean it's all going to work easy for us, but God can do this. Let's stay with the Lord. Stay in a good place. May God give you strength, give you courage to prevail. Lord, I, I pray that as we, as we uh, consider your words, as we, as we look into your principles, as we think about either things that we're having to face, we'll have to face, uh, maybe the next time around the corner, Lord, when we're tempted to panic about what's happening, what's not happening, the precarious position we find ourselves in, or people we find who we care deeply about, who are stuck in a place that looks very bad. Lord, that we would welcome you continually to help us, teach us, remind us, Lord, to be an expansive people, to be able to confront the things of life and not be defeated by them, to not allow even our past to pursue us, Lord, and overwhelm us. But, Lord, we welcome you into our lives. We welcome you, Lord, to do amazing things. Sometimes, Lord, we look at a situation, we go, well, how's it ever going to change? Is that door ever going to swing open for me? Lord, but we welcome you to be the one who opens up new things. And, and Lord, maybe sometimes you, you, what, who you are is most established in our lives in the worst possible place. And I suspect sometimes you allow us to go into that place just to be able to see what you can do in an amazing way.
that will cause us to never forget, just like Israel never forgot the mighty deliverance that occurred when they crossed the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh once and for all left, were left behind. May, Lord, our past be behind and may our future be ahead and may you be with us all the days of our lives. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.